Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. It's a joy to be with you today. It was an honor and a privilege to be with you last Saturday for our ninth anniversary. God certainly has been good to us. We have a faithful God. And so it was a joy to look back at the past nine years and to reflect on what God has done and what he is doing. Let me just take the opportunity before we get in, into uh, God's word this morning to mention a few upcoming opportunities as we transition into this new season of, of ministry. Let me mention just a few things. One, our next men's breakfast is tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. over in Garhud. If you need more information, you can get a map and other information at the connections table on your way out. Our ladies' Bible study in First Peter continues one week from today after this service at 1.15 p.m. down where the kids meet. Also want to let you know there's a prayer conference happening in Jebel Alley next Friday and Saturday. The topic of the conference is praying through the Psalms uh, with the guest speaker Christopher Ash from the United Kingdom. So come join us as we learn how to pray through Scripture. I also want to remind you that our finance course is coming up next month um, in the afternoon for five consecutive Fridays. You can sign up again in the foyer on your way out today. And then finally, one last thing. This happens in the beginning of the morning at 8 a.m. next week, but some of you may be interested, and so I want to tell you about our next adult education class starting next week at 8 a.m. It's going to be on marriage. So our elders are going to take the next six weeks, and our elders are going to teach on the subject of marriage. This is open to you if you're single, if you're dating and engaged, or if you're married. You can join as we look to see what the scriptures have to say about biblical marriage. Well, now on to the word ourselves. We've been looking over the last few months at the Sermon on the Mount. We've been seeing the astonishing words of Jesus in this sermon, though we could argue that today's passage has the greatest shock value. You get slapped on the right cheek? Well, let them slap you on the left side. Someone takes your tunic, give them your cloak. You're forced to go one mile, go two. And if that isn't enough, how about this one? Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. No one talks like this. It's like Jesus isn't speaking from reality. He takes us to another world. This reminds me of Star Wars. Some of you have seen these movies and love them. I have to confess, I really don't understand what's happening in these movies. Uh, my family loves them, but each time I'm watching with them, I have to ask them a thousand questions just to try to keep up. But the only thing I know is that Luke Skywalker and Han Solo are the good guys. And whenever they're trying to get away from the bad guys, they would say, we've got to make the jump to light speed. Now, that doesn't mean they're just trying to go a little bit faster. It means they're trying to zip to an entirely different realm. Well, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's not just calling us to a little change by making some small suggestions. He's taking us to a different realm altogether. He's speaking of a totally different world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking us light speed ahead to a new reality. He's showing us how to be citizens of another kingdom. 
We all need help with this. And you might hear the words as they were just read by Krizel a few moments ago, love your enemies. You might think, okay, Pastor Dave, finally, here's a week that I can take off from listening. It's a perfect opportunity for me. I don't struggle with this. And so I think it's a morning to catch up on my beauty sleep. You think you'll just take a little bit of a 40-minute nap. You know, wake me up when we start singing again. But you and I need this text. Maybe we need it more than we know. Have you or someone you know ever had their insurance claim rejected for no reason? You desperately needed treatment, but because it's expensive here in the UAE, it was rejected and you were denied care. Has your company ever withheld a paycheck from you? You work for weeks, maybe even months without pay. Or your employer held back your passport, denied the leave you were promised. Your contract hasn't been honored. Or maybe you're looked down upon because of your skin color or your passport country. You're paid less, not because of the quality of your work, but because of where you were born. Your landlord deceives you. Your coworker betrays you. A business lies to you. How do you respond in situations like these? When we're tempted in these instances to take justice into our own hands. But how do we honor God in times like these? How do we honor God in our response? How do we, we survive this world? Well, we survive by living radically different than the world. Here's the main point this morning. If you're taking notes, one overarching main point. Live a radical life by releasing your rights, giving up your honor, and loving your enemies. In the face of a world gone wrong, we do the unexpected. We live a radical life by releasing our rights, giving up our honor, and loving our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, if you haven't turned there. We'll be looking at verses 38 down through the end of the chapter, verse 48. Well, first, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In the ancient world, your face was the most honorable part of your body. Damage to your eyes or to your teeth meant it was time for revenge. You knock out my eye, I'm going to pop out your eye. You knock out my teeth, well, you're going to wear dentures, fake teeth for the rest of your life. Now, that sounds like a harsh law, but the allowance was a mercy to limit retaliation. It's easy for revenge to get out of hand. You knock out my tooth, I'm going to knock out four of yours. This law stopped the spiral of violence that, and gave judges a, a clear guide for justice. One tooth for one tooth. No more. But the first shock of this passage is that Jesus actually prohibits his followers from playing the honor game of retaliation altogether. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
Don't be like the world looking for revenge against the evildoer. Now, does this mean we follow Martin Luther's advice before he became a Christian? Luther would actually let lice nibble on him because he refused to kill any of them on account of this text. Now, Gandhi was also influenced by these verses and felt that you could never resist evil. But the Bible says otherwise. James and Peter both command Christians to resist the devil. We're called to resist sin. We rebuke those hurting others. We protect our families from evil. If your house is being infested with rats, don't let verse 39 be a basis for you living with them. You don't have to feed them and provide them a bed to sleep at night. No, don't be ridiculous. You get rid of those critters. You do whatever you can. Get them out of your house and bless your family with a 100% rat-free house. It's okay. This text also doesn't mean we let evil triumph in our communities. Romans 13 says that our government's job is to curb evil. Jesus is not forbidding the administration of justice. He's forbidding us individually from exacting revenge as a means of taking justice into our own hands. For example, someone drives up right behind you on Sheikh Zayed Road for a long while. They're right up against your bumper. You can feel them breathing down the back of your neck. Has this happened to one or two of you maybe ever before? Well, after a bit, what do they do? Well, they speed up ahead of you and then maybe they cut you off directly in front of you and then they drive right in front of you. Well, what do you do in that moment? Is it your normal reaction to say out loud, oh, bless you. Oh, bless you, dear friend. Just drive on ahead. Your road is my road. My road is your road. Or are you tempted to drive up past them? Are you tempted to show them your anger, maybe cut them off? Well, Jesus says you don't respond in anger and retaliation. We release our rights. We give up our honor when our pride and reputation are at stake. Jesus is going to illustrate this with four examples. The first one, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. Now, there was an an old Irish preacher who became a championship boxer. He had boxed, actually, he was a boxer for years and years and years. Then he became a Christian, and then he became a preacher of God's word. He entered into the ministry, and one day, this former boxer, now preacher, was setting up an evangelistic event. Two troublemakers approached him, and this preacher After the troublemakers said some mean things, the preacher gave him a a stern look, and one of the troublemakers punched the preacher on one side of his face. Well, he shook it off, and the preacher just turned his face the other direction, kind of stuck his chin out a little bit, and that same man struck the other side of his face. The guy punched him again. Well, then the preacher, the former boxer, he took off his coat, he rolled up his sleeves, and he said, well... The Lord gave me no further instructions. Whop. (laughs) Beat him up and he fell to the ground. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him turn the other, but that's all it says. (laughs) That's it. Well, Jesus is not prohibiting self-defense here. That's not what he's doing. 
Someone breaks into your home. Someone attacks you. You defend yourself. Jesus is not talking about physical assault, but personal insult. You don't slap someone on the cheek when you're trying to win a fight. Well, this illustration is talking more about an insult than a violent crime. To slap someone on the right cheek, what you'd have to do is use the backside of your hand, if you're right-handed. You'd slap them with the backside of your hand. This is a terrible offense here in the Middle East. And if by chance you're left-handed and you used your left hand, it was just as heinous because your left hand is your unclean hand. I talked to my Syrian friend about this text last week, and he said, to be slapped by someone with the back of your hand, to be slapped on the cheek with the back of your right hand is terribly disgraceful. He was surprised to know that the Bible actually specifies that Jesus specifically mentions the right cheek. He was shocked and said, this is just about the worst insult you can give another person. The fine in Jesus' day for doing this was equivalent to one year's annual wage. Two times the fine for physical assault. This is a big deal. This is why it was a big deal when Jesus was slapped on the face during his trial. But Jesus is telling us something counter-cultural here. When someone insults you like this, don't let your concern be trying to recover your honor. Now, Christians don't play the honor and shame game. We don't try to win it because we won't even play it. By turning the other cheek, we give up our honor. And we can do this as a Christian because we're fully secure in God. We're fully secure with our God. It's a radical response to the world. We don't have to cut off that person on the road because we have no need to prove we're right. When our coworker sabotages our work, we don't have to look for ways to sabotage their work. The kid teases us on the playground at school. We don't have to tease them back. And married friend, your spouse says something painful to you and hurts your feelings. You don't have to stab them in the back with your words to pay them back. We don't have to exchange insults to prove anything. Why? Well, because we get our security and we get our significance not from that person, but from God. I mean, do you see bullying people, demanding that people see that we're right, shaming people, shaming our kids, and belittling our employees is a sign of massive insecurity. If you do those things, you're insecure because you're fighting for that particular person to give you value. And the one seeking revenge is actually afraid. They're afraid of living without that approval. In contrast, this is why Jesus could march to the cross the way he did. Isaiah 53 says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep, that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was completely secure in his relationship with God the Father. A fellow Christian is an adopted child into God's family. We have all the security we need. And re remember this. As we seek to influence the world, no one has ever been won to the kingdom of God by retaliation. 
No one's ever thought to themselves, wow, because I've just been slapped back on my cheek, I want to worship their God. That's never happened. And no one grows in their relationship with Christ because we pay them back for the wrongs they've done. Well, Jesus tells us to break the cycle of revenge and to live radically different than the world. Jesus goes even further in his second illustration. Look at verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Your tunic was the article of clothing that was closest to your body. It's your normal, everyday clothes. This here is a strong honor and shame challenge because you didn't have a closet like we do today. You didn't have various wardrobe options. To give up your tunic was a big deal. Maybe you had one extra one, but that would have been it. Many only had one tunic. To give it up would have meant economic hardship, shame. Your cloak was your outer garment. You wore it on top of your tunic. It would double as a blanket in the colder weather. Your cloak was protected by Jewish law. So even if you had a great debt, no one had a right, not even the authorities, to seize your cloak. So loss of it would be the ultimate public shame. And this is what Jesus is saying, that the Christian willingly endures this kind of shame for the good of others. Willingly gives up its most valuable things for the good of others. Now again, this is a bit of hyperbole. It doesn't mean we all start wearing less and less clothes here on Friday morning. Now please, please come dressed here every week appropriately and respectfully. If you give the shirt off your back to someone, go find another shirt, then come join us. The point here isn't about your wardrobe. The point is, don't devote yourself to the defense of your honor. Live a radical life by releasing your rights, giving up your honor, and giving up your most honorable possessions to Christ. He gives a third illustration, verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now this, this command is more difficult than it looks. Roman law let soldiers commandeer local citizens in an occupied land. They could force you to do slave labor, and they could force you to carry their equipment for up to 1,000 paces. 1,000 steps or paces was their equivalent to one mile. This is how Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry Jesus' cross. Jews hated this humiliating and often abused law. But Jesus says, once you've done what the Romans have commanded you to do, double it. And do it voluntarily. You show that leader, you show that officer, you show that emperor that you're different. Let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our radical life is a life of mission. It's a life of mission that should be always pointing to God. Verse 42, Jesus keeps going. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So here's a, here's a fourth illustration in that section. It really sums up the previous three. Our generosity as Christians never turns away needy people. Our lives and our churches should be ministries of mercy. 
We release our rights to our money, realizing it's not our money anyway. It never was. God has merely given us stewardship over his funds. Giving cash or our time to the needy is going to cost you money, but also honor. You may not get the clothes you want or the car you would like to drive or to achieve the same success you could if you didn't help others. As a Christian, we live a radical life by releasing our rights, giving up our honor. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Now, to be honest, I kind of wish you'd just stopped here. I kind of wish chapter 5 ended right here, and he didn't move on to these final verses. But he doesn't stop there. There's another step. Release your rights, give up your honor, and love your enemies. This might be the most outrageous thing that Jesus has said yet. Verse 43, before he gets there, he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's going to command us something hard to do in just a minute. But before he gets there, before we get to the command, we see that the Pharisees weakened and changed the biblical command. I mean, do you see that in the text? They omitted the words, as yourself, from love your neighbor as yourself. They were just saying, just love your neighbor. And they narrowed that definition simply to the people that they liked. Some Pharisees would claim that only other Pharisees were their true neighbors. And they said that we're to hate our enemies. Now, just a quick test for you. Just a pop quiz for anyone here. Where in the Bible does it command us to hate our enemy? You can take a minute to find it in your Bibles. You can come up to me after the service, and you can show me in Scripture where it says that. But I guarantee you won't be able to do that because we don't find that command in the Bible. It's not biblical. That's true. There are passages of Scripture. There are certain psalms where it speaks of the enemies of God and that there will be judgment day for those enemies. But in our daily life, God has given us no right to act in his place as eternal judge. There's no command in Scripture for us to personally hate the enemy in front of us. That man or woman standing in front of us may be evil, may be doing evil things or have acted in evil ways towards us, but we have no idea whether he or she will repent in this life. At our church's anniversary, stood before you, and we looked at Acts chapter 9, and we saw that Saul the murderer became Paul the apostle, that God can change the worst of the worst. Now, God is patient with his enemies. We should be too. The Pharisees omitted, changed, and added to God's law. But in verse 44, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, Jesus' love is an unlimited love. Author Frederick Buechner put it this way, the love for equals is a human thing. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those more fortunate than you is a bewildering thing. But then there's love for the enemy, for those who mock you, those who insult you, those who violently injure you. It's the love for a torturer. This is God's love, and it conquers the world. See, when we love those who hurt us, 
when we love those who have despised us, when we love those who have wronged us, it surprises the world and it surprises them and shames them, both of which have the potential to transform their hearts. When we show love and sacrifice for our enemies, it shocks them and all around them. This is what Jesus is calling us to do, to love our enemy. He's not calling us merely to tolerate our enemies. Now, I love that this year is the year of tolerance here in the UAE. We're so thankful for our gracious and benevolent rulers. We praise God for their kindness. This is why we pray for them each week in our services, thanking them, praising God for them, praying that good will be done for them, that God will give them wisdom and discernment. We're so thankful for the religious openness in our country. We love our rulers. And so we want to join them, even as a church, raising and waving that banner for tolerance here in 2019. But we note from Scripture that distinctly Christian tolerance is love. Distinctly Christian tolerance is a Christ-like love because true tolerance isn't just putting up with someone. It's loving everyone everywhere. A prejudicial love is incompatible with the Christian faith. Our Lord loves all nations, all peoples, all tribes, and all tongues. A distinctly Christian tolerance loves all peoples and shows an active interest in those different than us. It defends the dignity of all people everywhere. Christians love all, including our enemies, those who have hurt us. Jesus says one of the best ways to do this is to pray for those who persecute us. This is the summit of Christian love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this the supreme command. It's where before God, we go toward our enemy. We get up side by side with them in our hearts, and we come before the throne of grace asking God to do them good. It's the pinnacle of love. It's the greatest good we can do for anyone, petitioning the God who is in control over the whole world. Every square centimeter is under his domain and under his control. And Jesus here is commanding us as Christians to come before him for the good of those who have persecuted us and for those who have hurt us. Now, this is no small command. It's no easy one. You know, when you pray for someone, you pray for someone who's hurt you, you pray regularly for them, it's impossible to do that and not grow in compassion for them. Here's the thing, though. We don't wait to pray for someone we don't like until we feel love for them in our heart. If that's the case, then we'll never start praying for them. We pray before we feel that love. Only then will we see and feel God's love break out. I was incredibly convicted this week. I had to stop in my sermon study, and I had to begin praying for several new people who weren't in my prayers. Is there someone like this in your life? Someone who's hurt you, 
a person you just don't like, maybe someone who despises you. You're each hurt by something in the past that's fractured your relationship. Now, here's what I want you to do, and I know this is incredibly tough. Here's what I want each of us to do. I want you and me, I want both of us, I want all of us, I want us to take the next 30 days, I want us to pray for that person or those people every morning for the next 30 days. I want all of us to do this. To pray for that person we've hurt, to pray for that person who's hurt us. Whoever comes to your mind, let's see how God works in their heart. Let's see how God works in our heart. Again, maybe this is more than one person. It was for me. I actually thought of several fractured relationships over the years. Who comes to your mind? It's probably not a terrorist or an entire nation. It's probably far more personal. Is it a family member? Maybe it's your spouse or an ex-spouse. Someone here at church or back home. A boss. A colleague. Someone you consider a rival. A classmate. Is there someone you've hurt or someone who's hurt you so bad that you're not in communication with them anymore? Pray for them. Maybe you've actually faced persecution for your following Jesus from in your home country. Pray for that nation. Pray for the authorities. Pray for someone who's hurt you. Pray for someone who slandered you. And pray a bold prayer like this. Whoever comes to your mind, pray that God would change their heart. Pray that God would give them success. Pray that that person would love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And pray that your love for them would increase. And that that wall of hostility that exists between you would come crumbling down. And as a start, let's all do this for the next 30 days. And let's see what God does. I know that many of us have gone through much, much terrible pain. I want to challenge us to pray. To pray for those who've hurt us. I think this, I know this will be revolutionary for each and every one of us personally and for our whole community. Loving our enemies by praying for those who persecute us. We do this to, in obedience to God. And we do this because of verse 45. We love our enemies and we pray for those who per persecute us so that we may be sons of our Father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, a child of God must love. This is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's not a multiple choice exam. To be a child of God, you must love everyone everywhere. Now, of course, our love doesn't earn anything. We can't gain status as sons. But we demonstrate that we're God's children when we love as our Father loves. It's a fruit of our faith. We love the unlovely and we don't discriminate because God doesn't discriminate. He sends his sun to shine and he sends his rain pouring down on the good and on the evil, on the just and on the unjust. Well, God has every right to retaliate against sinners for their dishonor towards him. But he doesn't. 
Instead, he extends patiently his grace and his mercy. We should do the same and be like him, not like the rest of the world. Jesus makes this clear in verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, well, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Even the tax collectors and the Gentiles love one another. Now, these verses would have been stunning to the original hearers. They would have been stunning to the Pharisees because Jesus is referring here to the most despised people in society, the tax collectors, the Gentiles, the sinners. So the tax collectors were the traitors. They were Jews who sided, teamed up with Rome in order to tax their own people. This was particularly evil because what the tax collectors would do is that they would actually tax and charge ahead or above what the Romans would require so that they can pocket some more money. They were stealing from their own people. The Gentiles or the sinners, they didn't love God. They lived such licentious lives apart from God. They were, they were the wicked sinners in those, in those days. They didn't follow God. And Jesus says, even the tax collectors, even the Gentile sinners, they return kindness for kindness. This is an ironic twist. Jesus is telling the Pharisees to see that their righteousness is on the same level as those they deemed to be the least righteous. Oh, Pharisees, you're actually not any better than the tax collectors and the Gentiles. This was a big blow to their bloated pride. Even the worst of the worst do these things. If we only love those who love us, what's so special about us? If we love our spouse when they love us, if we give back to our parents who raised us, we look out for our friends that care for us, if we associate with those from our same tribe or nation, we respect those from our same or better socioeconomic class. What's so special about that? Well, Jesus says, nothing. nothing special about that. We're all nice to people who are nice to us. We're all nice to people who can give us things. Just think about how you feel when someone gives you a compliment for your work. All of a sudden, you think that person has really great ideas. Hey, so-and-so is a really smart person over there. We respond well to our boss because they have the power to give us a raise or to terminate our job. We're kind to the customer that we hope makes a deal with our company. Of course we are. Of course we do that. Self-interest dictates our courtesy. But Jesus says, love everyone everywhere. We look out for the lowly. We extend forgiveness to the unworthy. Oh, Redeemer Church, what more are you doing than others? That's the key word there, more. It's not enough for Christians to resemble non-Christians. Our calling is to live a radical life by releasing our rights, giving up our honor, and loving our enemies. We greet those who aren't yet our brothers. We look out for people we don't know. We embrace people from different ethnic backgrounds. 
This means that on Friday mornings, each of us are on the unofficial connections team. Every church's members are friendly to one another, but true love looks out for the guest, for the hurting, for the quietly invisible. Even the Gentiles reach out to the people they know. God's people are to be extraordinary, extraordinary. This is what Jesus means in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a command. We can't lessen the force of it. Of course, we can't be morally 100% holy or perfect in this life. That's not what Jesus is saying. The context of these verses in this passage is in the context of love. Jesus is commanding us to be like God and having a perfect, indiscriminate love towards all. This is the mark of a Christian. Our love is not controlled by the love of another person. Our love is controlled by the God who has first loved us. Our love is guided by the knowledge that we were once God's enemy, but are now seated in fellowship with him at his table. Realizing God loved us while we were his enemy, that frees us to love those who've hurt us. We forgive someone's sin against us because God has forgiven us the one trillion sins we've committed against him. We don't rest in approval from our boss because we've been approved by the God who rules over our boss. We can turn the other cheek because Jesus turned the other cheek. We can give up our tunic and our cloak because Jesus gave up everything for us. We can go the extra mile because Jesus came down from heaven to us. We can give to the needy because Jesus gave us his life. Oh, we can forgive because we realize, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I was an enemy too. How can I hold this grudge against someone when Jesus died to forgive me? We don't have to take justice into our own hands, but we can wait for God's perfect justice. Well, friend, if you've been abused or assaulted in some way, someone's hurt you and there's not been justice. Friend, I want you to know there's hope. I want you to know that there is hope. You can wait with expectant hope in the everlasting judge. He will render perfect justice. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It will happen. More complete than any court on this earth can do. God himself will do it. Oh, friend, wait on him. Wait on him. If you're currently in a situation, you're being assaulted, being abused, being hurt, come talk to us as elders. We want to help you. Don't remain in that situation, but know that you don't have to take revenge in your own hands, but that God will do it. That our loving God will do it. God delivers perfect justice so we don't have to. It may not happen in our lifetimes. We might not get to see it with our eyes during this life, but it will happen. And friend, if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus to save you through the mercy of the cross. So your sin deserves 
ultimate justice and punishment. But the beauty of Christianity is that when we repent of our sins and we trust in Jesus to save us, that punishment we deserve is placed on Christ and we're set free. Oh, friend, be set free and follow Jesus. For then and only then will you stop your endless pursuit of looking to the world to satisfy your heart. And then and only then can you live a radical life by releasing your rights, giving up your honor, and loving your enemies. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you, our God of perfect justice. We wait for that last day. We wait for that last day where perfect justice will come. And until then, oh, would we as a church live radical lives of love and forgiveness? Would we willingly give up our rights and our honor? Oh, would we shower love upon our enemies? And would that push back the darkness of this world? Would we let our light shine before others that they might see our good works and glorify you in heaven? Oh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.